Hey church family, so good to be with you on this Sunday as we get together to worship God together together again and so glad that you've joined us uh, today or this morning whenever it is that you're watching and joining with us together. Just want to let you know we have been meeting outside and you are welcome to join us. We're glad to have you join us. We have been meeting outside not yet in the church building yet, that's coming, and we do have a plan in place for when we do <clears throat> begin to worship inside again, for the, but for the time being, we are continuing to worship outside. We have been worshiping, <clears throat> excuse me, at 9.30 in the morning, but we actually are going to move that next Sunday, the 13th, back to 10.30, so to try and compensate for the cooler weather, we're moving it back an hour like I said, we'd love to have you come join us, but we know that not everybody's quite comfortable with that. And so if you want to continue worshiping online, we are so glad to have you and so glad that you've chosen to worship with us. But just wanted to keep you abreast of the things that are going on. So worship time moving to 1030 outside next Sunday and in the future, hopefully, you know, we're not sure exactly when that's going to happen, but we will move inside uh, and, and we have a plan in place for that when we do plan to do that. But for the time being, outside worship and, and obviously online will continue even when we do move inside. So we're just glad that you've joined us in whatever capacity that is. I heard a story about a kindergarten teacher who was walking around her classroom as her uh, students were drawing pictures. And there was one little girl who was just really intent in what she was drawing. And so the teacher walked over and she said, honey, what, what are you drawing and the little girl said I'm drawing a picture of Jesus and kindergarten teacher kind of smiled and gently said well honey you know we don't really not sweet but we don't really know no one really knows for sure what Jesus looks like and the little girl without missing a beat said well they will in a minute <laughs> you know we are in the midst of a series called uh, we're walking through the book of James called a faith that works and, and we're walking through the book and, and really I use that, that joke because in many ways, James is painting us a picture. He's drawing us a picture and saying, here's what it looks like to follow Jesus. Here's what it looks like to have a faith in Jesus, a faith that really works. You know, I think about one of Jesus's most famous teachings and probably his most practical teaching we find in Matthew chapters 5 through 7. We often call it the Sermon on the Mount. And it's interesting when you read through James, there are a lot of parallels to Jesus' teaching in, in the Sermon on the Mount. After all, Jesus is James's half-brother. And so G James comes along and he says, here's a, here's a picture. Here's, I'm taking the most practical teaching that Jesus, my half-brother, gives, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to parlay that into, into this book, and I'm going to give you some practical teachings. I'm going to give you a practical picture of what it looks like to follow Jesus. I'm going to give you a practical picture of what it looks like to have a faith that works, a faith that, that is living and active and moves and practically makes a difference in your life and in the world around you. And so we're just going to dive right back into where we were last week, picking up back up in James chapter 1. And we're going to start in verse 26, and we're actually going to read through a part of chapter 2. So James chapter 1, starting in verse 26. He writes, Those who consider themselves religious... And yet do not keep a tight rein on their tongues, deceive themselves, and their religion is worthless. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. And continuing on into James chapter 2, my brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in filthy clothes also comes in. 
If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand there or sit on the floor by my feet. Have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of whom to him, of him to whom you belong? If you really keep the royal law found in scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said, you shall not commit adultery, also said, you shall not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. Because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. This section of James really revolves around one big idea when it comes to a faith that works, and it's this. A faith that works is marked by mercy. A faith that works is marked by mercy. That's really the, the overarching point of this section of James and really all that we're going to talk about in our teaching time today. Any any faith that truly works and makes a difference in our lives and in the world around us is marked by mercy. And within this passage, James really deals with three things in particular when it comes to a faith that works and that is marked by mercy. And the first thing is this, a faith that works speaks with mercy. A faith that works speaks with mercy. James begins in verse 26 by basically saying, open up and say, ah. We're gonna, we're, let's talk about the tongue here for, for just a moment. He says, those who consider themselves religious and don't keep a tight rein on their tongues deceive themselves, their religion is worthless. Now, James will have a little bit more to say about the tongue. We'll talk about that in a later lesson. And James chapter three talks about that. But for now, he says, if I think I'm religious, now, don't think of that word religious as a bad word. He means it here in a good sense. Sometimes we we have negative connotations when it comes to that word religious, and some people have used it in a, in a negative way. But really, James is saying, if you think you're religious, if I think that, that I'm following Jesus and I'm living the life that he's called me to live and doing the things that he's called me to do, and yet my tongue isn't under control, then my religion is worthless. My, my belief system is worthless. I'm deceiving myself. Now, he, myself. now he's not talking about here, about having a tongue that's silenced, okay? He's talking about having a tongue that's reined in. And again, he'll talk more about this in, in the next chapter, in James chapter three. But, but, but he's saying a, a tongue that's under the reign of God, that, that's reined in, is a tongue that blesses others. It speaks life into others. It doesn't curse or, or tear down. It's a merciful tongue. Now, what's the big deal about the tongue here? Why, why does James say that my tongue has a lot to do with me evaluating whether or not my religion is worthless. Well, because my tongue is related to my heart. Jesus, James's half-brother, said in Luke chapter 6, verse 45, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. In other words, the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. Have you ever taken a drink of something or eaten something that you thought was gonna be one thing 
And yet when you took a bite of it or you took a drink of it, it turned out to be something different. And I don't mean that in a good way. I remember when my, my brother and I were younger and we both had gotten up and we were going to get breakfast and we both wanted some cereal. And so I said, hey, I'll, 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 I'll pour you some cereal, which probably should have been his first um, you know, indication that something was off because how often did his older brother actually want to do something nice for him? But but I went over and I got the cereal and I poured some cereal in a bowl for each of us. And then I went over to the refrigerator to get some milk to pour into the cereal, obviously. And there were two kinds of milk in, in the refrigerator. There was regular milk, like 2% milk. But then there was also some buttermilk that my mom had in the refrigerator. And so I, you know, my mind starts turning. And so instead of pouring the regular milk into the bowl, I decide to pour the buttermilk in the bowl. And of course... When it's in the cereal, you got the cereal in there, you can't really tell it's buttermilk. Uh, you know, it looks just the same as 2% or whole milk or whatever other milk you want to use. And so I'm taking it over there and I, you know, to him and I'm trying not to laugh and, and, and bust out laughing. But as soon as he took a big spoonful of that cereal and those, that buttermilk hit his taste buds, uh, he, uh, he spit it out. <laughs> he spit it right out. And, I, of course, I'm just, I'm dying laughing, you know, at my brother's expense. And I know some of you love the taste of buttermilk. My grandfather used to eat uh, cornbread and buttermilk just, you know, by itself. And some of you may love the taste of buttermilk. But to a young boy who's expecting 2% milk, regular milk in his cereal, that was uh, not on his, his radar. The point is, and I promise there's a point in all of this, but the point is that you find out what's really on the inside by what comes out, Right? He thought it was 2% milk, but he found out when he took a bite of it what was really on the inside. It's not the exterior. It's not the facade. Often it's what comes out of your mouth that tells people what's really on the inside. Now, now remember, what, when we're talking about the larger context here of James chapter 1, what we've already talked about, what, what, what is James speaking to? What, what, what's the, the subject matter that he's talking about? He's talking about trials. He's talking about adversity. And you find out a lot about what's really on the inside of you when you go through a trial, when you go through adversity. That's when what you really believe comes out. And so the context that James is getting at here is he's saying, what comes out of your mouth in the midst of trials and adversity? What, what are the things that you talk about? What are the things that, you, that, that, are, that are most often coming out of your mouth in the midst of trials and adversity, because that often will tell you a lot about how substantial and how real your faith truly is. And worthless religion, James says, is a religion that doesn't transform my heart as evidenced by my mouth. But a faith that works is a faith that pays attention to what comes out of my mouth, because it's a revelation of what's in my heart. But a faith that works involves more than God working on my heart to give me a merciful mouth. Secondly, a faith that works also responds with mercy. It doesn't just speak with mercy, it responds with mercy. James goes on to say in verse 27, religion that God accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. So James takes it a step further. He says, mercy is not just a matter of your mouth, mercy is a matter of your Life And it involves your response to those around you who are in need. And specifically, James uses the reference or the, the example of orphans and widows. And that's not random by any chance that he uses those, those two things. Because our God has a long history of paying attention to orphans 
and widows. In Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 18, it says, He defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow and loves the alien or the foreigner, giving him food and clothing. Later in the Old Testament, in places like Isaiah chapter 1, verse 16, God calls his people to join him in this. He says, stop doing wrong, learn to do right, seek justice, encourage the oppressed, defend the cause of the fatherless, and plead the case of the widow. And so it's, it's not random that James uses those two examples here. Now, there are two things that, that really stand out to me in this part of James. The first is that James is telling this, keep in mind, James is telling this to believers who are in adversity themselves. And that ought to tell you something. Just because I'm going through adversity doesn't release me from the call to minister to someone else who's going through adversity. Just because you're going through a trial or going through adversity doesn't mean you have a, a free pass from reaching out to others who are going through their own trials. Now, I'm not saying that there isn't a time for you to work on what you need to work on, right? And to deal with what you're, you're having to deal with. There, there certainly is a time for, for that. There certainly is a time for us being able to say no when it comes to the, you know, what, what somebody else is dealing with and to be able to deal with my own, my own things. There, there's times to say no. Some of us need to learn to say no more than what we, we often do. But that's, that's probably for another day and another sermon. But, but the point is, what James is calling us to here and telling us is, is, you know, those of you who are going through trials, going, going through times of adversity, listen, you still need to be aware. Even if you're going through your own stuff, you still need to be aware of those around you and respond to them in mercy, even in the midst of your own trials and adversity. Going through adversity does not free me from the call to minister to others who are in need. And in many ways, James says the mark of true religion is this, not being so preoccupied with my own problems that I can't be concerned with the struggles of others. Because to be among others who are in need, in many ways, is to be where Jesus is. That's where Jesus was. He met people where they are in their times of need. And sometimes, you know, you ministering to others Someone else who's, who's in need is the way that God ministers to you in the midst of a trial. Sometimes when you're going through something and you reach out to someone, that's a way that God ministers to you. And I think there's plenty of us who would testify to, 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 to that experience of receiving ministry and grace from the Lord, even as you pour out to someone else in the midst of your own adversity and trial. Here's the second thing, though, in this little section that I think is powerful. It's a little thing. It's easy to kind of skip over, especially if you don't understand the, the original language, but it is worth noting. Let me see if I can kind of explain it. Hopefully I, I do well in explaining this, but in the language that James is writing in, the Greek language, there is no, one of the ands is not in there. There, there is no and. When, when James says, look after orphans and widows, that's not the and, but when he says, look after orphans and widows and uh, keep yourself, you know, keep oneself from being polluted from you know, by the world, that and, that second and is not in there. In other words, looking after orphans and widows and keeping oneself from being polluted by the world, they have something to do with one another. You know, looking after orphans and widows and keeping oneself from being, being polluted um, by the world, those aren't separate entities, okay? They're connected to one another because it's a heart issue. It's a, it's a, it's a mercy issue. And, and really, in many ways, that leads us right into James chapter 2. It's a nice segue into James chapter 2 because I think he deals with the same thing 
in James chapter 2. They're all connected together. That also leads to the third thing that James points to when it comes to a faith that works and that's marked by mercy, and it's this. A faith that works doesn't play favorites. A faith that works doesn't play favorites. Listen again to what he says in James chapter 2, starting in verse 1. He says, My brothers and sisters, believers in the, glory, in, glory, in the glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in filthy old clothes comes in, also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, Here, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, You stand there or sit on the floor by my feet. Have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? And so the churches that he's writing to are struggling with favoritism to the rich and prejudice against the poor. That's the pollution that James is talking about. Favoritism towards the rich and prejudice against the poor. So why? Why do we play favorites when it comes to the rich and the wealthy? I think one of the reasons is that we think that they can do something for us or in some way it, that relationship or that association will do something for us. I mean, you think about it. What, what's, what's going on in James? What's happening in the context of James? All these believers have been persecuted and driven out of Jerusalem. They're having to make homes elsewhere. They've lost their livelihood. They're struggling financially. Most of them are starting over financially. And so they're going through, among other trials, they're going through a lot of financial struggles and adversity. And like we talked about last week, when you're, when you're going through a trial or you're going through adversity, you're especially susceptible to temptation. And the temptation here is to want to favor and honor the rich in hopes that they might do something for them in return. Here, here's a seat for you. Sit here. Please sit here. I'll get up and move. Let me, let me accommodate you. And yet for the poor, like orphans and widows, they can't really do anything for you in return. Now, notice that James doesn't criticize the wealthy visitor, okay? That, that, that's not the problem. The problem isn't with somebody being rich. What he's doing is he's challenging the church for how they're responding to the rich. They're showing favoritism. And James says, you're guilty of discrimination. You see, discrimination doesn't have to be a race thing. I mean, we see that a lot, far too often than what we ought to, but it doesn't just have to be a, a race thing. It can be an economic thing. It can be a social thing. It can even be a political. It can be any number of things in our world. I was listening to uh, one pastor talk about this. He's at a huge church where they have some professional athletes and entertainers that will sometimes attend. And he said, you can just watch how some people act when these when a well-known person or well-known people will come into the church, they'll walk in and they'll look for a seat. People will be getting up to let them have a seat. They'll be positioning themselves for how they can talk to them and interact with them in the welcoming portion time. And folks in that section, the moment a well-known person comes in to sit, they're suddenly smiling. They're, they're sitting up straighter. They're fidgeting with their clothes. They're messing with their hair and their makeup. They're checking those things. They're constantly, you know, kind of stealing glances and looking over. And this pastor, as he's talking about, he kind of lamented. He, he said, I'd, I'd like to think that we're a welcoming and friendly church, but I wonder sometimes, <clears throat> are we welcoming or are we just discriminating? And I know we, we like to think that we are welcoming, and I'm, I'm, you know, I'm not 
casting aspersions on anybody. And I don't think James is, well, James is calling them out, but I think it's just healthy for us to think through some of our, even an unintentional and subconscious prejudices. I mean, just think for a moment about the people that you make an effort to talk to. Think about the people that you go out of your way for that maybe you don't go out of the way for for others. And I know I'm guilty of that. You see, as people and as churches, we're more discriminating than we are welcoming if the only ones that feel welcomed by us are the ones that we think can do something for us or the ones that, that have to act or look or behave or speak in a certain way. And this, this, is, this is so hard not to do because we live in a culture of playing favorites and it's easy to get polluted. We like to help people who in the end can help us in some way or whose association makes us look good in some way. But all of that gets in the way of us having the energy and the resource and resources and the willingness and the intentionality to show mercy to those in need who can't do anything for us. And, and that's what's going on here in, in James. And he continues, verse five, listen, my dear brothers and sisters, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised to those who love him? But you, you have, excuse me, but you have dishonored the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of him to whom you belong? James says really three things here. He says, first, be careful that you don't choose over the poor in the eyes of the world because God hasn't chosen over them. So, so be very careful about that. Secondly, he says, the people that you're playing favorites towards, James is just kind of appealing to their common sense here. He says, the people that you're playing favorites towards, they're the ones who are exploiting you. Right? I mean, that's basically what he's saying. You, you think you're using them, but in the end, they're the ones who are using you. And then finally, the third thing he says is, the wealthy you're favoring, they're the ones who are blaspheming the name to whom you belong. By the way, have you ever noticed <clears throat> it's not the poor who are trying to kick God out of society? It's, it's not. Why? Because when you're in circumstantial need, when, when you're poor, you're often much more clued in to the reality of needing someone outside of you to help you. But when you think that you're responsible for all you have and that you, 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 you're the source of it all and you got it going on, it's much easier to look at God as more of a luxury item. I'm not, I'm not saying that's always the case, just, just a thought to think about. Now, in no way, in no way, so don't hear what I'm not saying, no way do I want to give the impression that God is biased against the rich either. Because quite truthfully, that'd pretty much be all of us comparatively speaking. Uh, every single person, pretty much, listening to this or joining us or part of this church family, we are all rich, comparatively speaking. And so we all be in trouble. But James is, what he's doing is he's challenging their favoritism for the wealthy and their culture. And he's asking them, just, just think about your prejudices. Just think about it. Be aware of those things and those people that you're prejudiced against. And James is it done. Verse 8, if you really keep the royal law found in Scripture love your neighbor as yourself, 
you are doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking it all. And so he goes on to develop this further. And here's why this is important. I think it's easy sometimes to think of, of things like, you know, favoritism and prejudice and not showing mercy to, to kind of think, well, they're, they're kind of on the not so bad list, right? I mean, you know, I, I, I know they're not good, you know, but they're, they're not really bad sins, right? I mean, they're not as bad as some other things. Favoritism, not showing mercy, prejudice. I mean, you know, we shouldn't do them, but they're not as bad as some of the other things on the list, right? You, you know those things that are, that are really bad. They're, they're kind of like white-collar sins, if you will. But James, in essence, says the law of God's like a pane of glass. You, you break one part of it, and the whole thing is broken and shattered. You've broken it all at that point. And he says, this is a royal law issue. I love that language. This is a royal law issue. You know, Jesus, again, James's half-brother, said that there are two commands, two commandments that, that everything hangs on. He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Every command that God gives is an expression or an outflowing of those two commands. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. And James reminds him, this is an issue of loving your neighbor as yourself. Favoritism and prejudice and not showing mercy, that is, a, that is an expression of loving your neighbor, not loving your neighbor as yourself. And he calls loving your neighbor the royal law because it's one of the laws, the two laws that the king himself hangs everything on. And it's no small crime in God's eyes. Speaking of that, James closes with this. James 2, 12 and 13. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. Because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. James reminds us that how we welcome others without favoritism and without prejudice and with mercy has something to do with the welcome that we receive from God. You know, I've been thinking about this passage a lot because we've been walking through it and then over the last couple of weeks is preparing for this lesson and I'm, I'm struck by the irony that far too many people in our culture, far too many people in America associate religion and Christianity with judgment. And that's just not a faith that's gonna work in this world. And that's really, <laughs> to be frank, it's just not a faith that's gonna work from God's perspective either. A faith that works is marked not by judgment, but by mercy. Mercy that's rooted in our hearts, that comes off of our lips and flows out of our lives. A faith that works is marked by bestowing favor upon those who can't really do anything for us in return. In fact, a faith that works kind of looks a whole lot like how God treats us. I'm reminded of the words of former Mayor Rudy Giuliani. He said these words in the wake of 9-11. Here's what he said. So, you know, people, I've learned something through all of this. Let me see if I can express it to you. When everybody was fleeing that building, talking about the, the towers, 
and the cops and the firefighters and the EMS people were heading up into it, do you think any of them said, I wonder how many blacks up, are up there for us to save? I wonder what percentage are whites up there? How many Jews are up there? Let's see. Are these people making $400,000 a year or $24,000 a year or no? When you're saving lives, they're all precious. And that's how we're supposed to live all the time. How would you want the cops to treat you if you were on the 75th floor that day? Would you want them to say, excuse me, but I've got to get the bosses out first? Not exactly. I confess I haven't always lived this way, but I'm convinced that God wants us to do it. He wants us to value every human life the way he does. And truth be told, I haven't always lived that way either. But the good news is I've got a father who can purify the most polluted of faith. And in this world of purification, water purification, all kind of air purification, I think sometimes we need a faith and religion purification because you and I live in a world that's dying of thirst for a faith that works. And a faith that works seeks to be delivered from favoritism and prejudice and into the land of a whole life built on the gospel of Jesus Christ and marked by mercy.